Welcome back to Two Keto Dudes. This is Carl Franklin from Connecticut in the United States. And in February of 2016, I put myself on a ketogenic diet to take control of my metabolism. In just two and a half months, I managed to reverse all my markers of type 2 diabetes with diet alone. As of now, I'm 80 pounds lighter with no signs of diabetes or heart disease. Hi, I'm Richard Morris in Canberra, Australia, and I've been on a ketogenic diet since April of 2014. And when I started, I was very sick with complications from type 2 diabetes. Within six months of starting ketogenic diet, all of my biomarkers of disease had disappeared. I've also lost about 80 pounds. I've completely turned my health around. And again, this is normally where I say this show is a document of my progress through ketosis and Richard's experience thriving for years in ketosis. Yada, 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 yada. (laughs) But we have another pilot podcast to bring you today. And Just to give you some background, um, we started this Patreon account at patreon.2keto.com so that we might get some support to make additional podcasts. And I'm not talking Mm -hmm. about additional episodes. I'm talking about podcasts. We want to empower some people that we know to do their own weekly shows. Yeah. And we started with Karen and Mark. Mm -hmm. And they're doing a parenting show and also a Keto Keto show. Right. And that was episode 79, the Keto Families mm-hmm. pilot episode, uh, Karen Mangicotti and Mark Miller. And this is the second pilot that we want to bring you. And it's called Keto Women yeah. with host Daisy Brackenhall. So we are just going to devote this entire episode to the pilot of Keto Women. Mm. Take it away, Daisy. Hello Keto Lovelies, I'm Daisy Brackenhall and I've spent most of my life struggling with my weight and confidence and I've always had a difficult relationship with food. Even when I finally got to my target weight after weight loss surgery and eating low carb, I couldn't maintain it and I was miserable. Keto has given me the freedom to fall in love with food again without the constant gain, loss, guilt, virtue cycle of before. Health and happiness is where it's at now, running on fat. Welcome to the Keto Woman podcast. Each week I'll be chatting to inspirational women, maybe even a few men, to discover their secrets to success and share them with you. My first guest is Louise Reynolds. Hey Louise, thank you so much for being my first extraordinary woman. How are you today? Hi Daisy, thank you so much for the invitation and I'm really honoured to be one of your extraordinary women on the Keto Women's podcast. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. So good to have you here. So tell the listeners a bit about yourself. Well, um, first of all, you'll notice that I am from Australia. I live in Adelaide and um, I'm a military mum of three teenage boys. And um, yeah, so who's been keto just over a year. I think I've had my ketoversary back in um, May this year. And um, like yourself, have had a very complicated relationship with food and um, have really discovered low carb and then into keto this last year and really am living life like yourself on fat and, you know, feeling so much more healthier and yeah, happier for it. It's the best, isn't it? So you've mentioned a little bit there already, but but what really does keto mean for you? I think in a practical sense, um, keto for me is where I have really reduced and replaced my carbohydrates in my diet, um, certainly those refined carbohydrates, 
and processed carbohydrates, certainly with um, healthier um, carbs in green leafy vegetables and really replace that with fat. So like many people um, who know about the food pyramid, we've done the swap. So we, where we had fats at the top, now fats are at the bottom of my little food pyramid. I've really um, certainly have not eliminated carbs um, particularly, but I certainly have reduced them to below 20 grams and um, certainly have increased my fats. And um, I certainly know about my protein and I keep that scaled to my lean body mass. And um, I can certainly talk to you through that I've actually had um, some DEXA scans. So, um, yeah, just keeping my protein um, moderate and eating my fats to, um, to really until I feel full. So DEXA scan, so how dense are you then? Oh, oh I am <laughs> dense. Um, so certainly that was actually quite um, enlightening and I, I'm sure that many keto women will who have lived and died by the scales will know um, that mm. um, certainly the scales that we have and um, my partner Andrew is a bit of a data a data junkie and we have a Fitbit scale so that actually not only tells you what your um, your gross mass is but also your body fat and I was struggling with this stupid scales because it was telling me I was 36% um, body fat. And I hated this machine because, you know, for the longest time I, you know, was, re you know, losing weight and it, my body, body mass was staying at 36% and I just was struggling with that number. And I ended up having um, a DEXA scan and it told me I was actually 24% body fat. Nice. It was a revelation. I just looked at the woman and I said, you're kidding me. And no, she said, no, the, the DEXA scan, you know, says quite clearly here that this is your lean body mass, which was really good to know. This is your bone density. This is, you know, your muscle mass and um, your, your fat mass and it you know down to your left leg and your right leg and your right arm and your left arm which was absolutely just amazing so I was actually feeling very relieved in one sense um but appalled at the technology um and how it, it was basically lying to me this whole time absolutely yeah those scales were not your friend were they <laughs> they were not but uh, the explanation I got was, um, and I don't know how true this is, but one explanation I got was because of our electrolytes of um, differ. So because we're not retaining, um, I think, our salts and um, our water in terms of having carbohydrates that are hold that particular mass, as you know, when we start keto, we lose a lot of water and that obviously shifts um, some of our electrolytes and particularly it's about the sodium and um, because the impedance scales actually regs an electrical current through your skin and that somehow changes the way that the scales read um, read our body mass. Right. Oh, that that's interesting. So there, there's actually a good reason for the fact that they're, they're showing a distortion. Most definitely. And so that was one explanation. Um, so, yeah, I'm not sure, you know, how, how true that actually holds, but it, 
because the impedance scales go through, um, read or measure through some electrical current and because of our salt um, electrolyte differences, the, um, the way the electrical current processes um, through us and the scales measuring that, it was obviously um, very, very different to what was in actuality. So I'm actually relieved to be 24% body fat at the moment. Absolutely. And that's why when we read on, um, you know, the forums and, you know, Facebook, the scales say this, I just am a firm believer of ditch the scales. And, um, yeah, if you really want to know what you are, then, you know, DEXA scans are obviously a little bit pricey, but um, I believe you can get scoupons. Do you have those or groupons, um, vouchers? for um you know i've heard of it yeah, yeah yeah i'm not sure it's definitely it's definitely something i'd like to do at some point a dexa scan because like you say it's it's the only way to to really get an accurate reading yeah but yeah that's good so so we first appeared on a podcast together on the weight loss surgery podcast with the two keto dudes and shared our, our whole weight loss surgery story on there but what i particularly remember from that show was that you mentioned work you did with an eating disorder clinic. And I was really curious to find out a bit more about that. Um, yeah, so I, um, a little bit more about me, I am a health researcher, academic, and um, part of my weight loss journey was for a number of years um, really struggling with my relationship with food and particularly, I suppose, around binge eating um and that was a lot to do with obviously being an emotional eater and there was a lot of things um happening in my life at the time and as you sort of mentioned we appeared on podcast 52 of the two keto dudes um, series 52 i think it's 52 yeah and um leading up to the decision to have weight loss surgery for about three years i was seeing a psychologist who was a clinical researcher at the university i was working for and a lot of what we were going through was cognitive behavior therapy. So looking at what were the, um, the triggers for um, the triggers around my emotions, what was my emotional state, which led me to, um, to eating. And a lot of that um, work was actually uh, understanding what were those thoughts, those feelings that were associated, and then the resulting behaviour that led me to um, making that particular food choice. And you could see very clearly what the sequence was. You know, I was thinking this or feeling this, and therefore I was behaving this way, and you were in that particular um, cycle of of behaviours. So you could map out a pattern, as it as it were. So you could quite clearly see when I when I. I'm always saying to people, journal what's happening with you Correct. every day so Correct. you can see patterns. So that's, that's, that's one of the things you did in therapy was to really map out exactly what was going on. Exactly. So there was a lot of journaling, um, a lot of diary entries and, um, you know, a lot of those sorts of um, escalations in emotions. There certainly was a lot of homework that was, this is what I'm, I'm feeling, this is what I'm thinking, therefore this is the behaviour, what were perhaps recent redirections that were happening. So, yeah, a lot of the homework was just mind mapping 
um, and documenting that as well as a lot of that narrative therapy as well. So the psychologist worked me through a number of um, activities and exercises. Um, there was, you know, weekly sessions. Then it grew to obviously monthly, three-monthly sessions as I was obviously working through um, a lot of those thoughts and feelings um, that was going on. There was certainly some high emotions connected with the relationship breakdown of my marriage at the time. We were moving into family court, of course. There was lots of lots of family-related issues that was going on and obviously a lot of, as what Dr. Phil would say in pop psychology, um, having the party in my mouth to make me feel better, which saw me um, gain weight. Um, I got close to 300 pounds, which is about 100 and nearly close to 140 kilos. I seem to remember you didn't, you said before that you didn't have too much of a, a struggle with maintaining your weight when you were younger. No. It was only a bit later that you started gaining weight. Yeah, at the end of my marriage and obviously through the escalations through family court and things like that, that's when it, it certainly, there was a period of about five to seven years of, um, you know, the weight gain. But the psychology that happened certainly before the surgery was instrumental, I believe, for the success of my surgery and after that. So, right. um, and that's where I really take issue a lot with what we read on Facebook when people talk about weight loss surgery being drastic and barbaric. Um, and I know that Zoe Hardcombe actually mentioned that the other day on her tweet. Um, and that, you know, where people sort of think that we take the easy way out. And that's really where, actually, for me, it was a three year decision or a three year process leading up to. Um, yes, it's quite a radical thing, but it certainly was having exhausted, ex you know, emotionally exhausted a lot of options and opportunities, and it was a well thought out and researched um, decision. So, what, what were the what were the real useful things that that you took from that time in therapy? What were some of the practical tools that they gave you with with how to deal with this process that you mentioned this mapping out of what happens with the link between emotions and eating what tools did you get to deal with that I think what was some of the, the really great tools were the homework activities and the exercises and just even if you map out I am feeling this and I think what that is is vocabulary we need to increase our vocabulary beyond just feeling happy, sad and mad and bad and um, we need to sort of go, well, actually, I'm not feeling happy, sad, bad or bad, but I might be, geez, I'm concerned about something or I'm frustrated with that or, yeah, that's I'm intrigued by that. So I think naming our feelings beyond happy, sad, mad and bad was, was one thing. Connecting yeah. that feeling to that feeling makes me think this and what is that thinking and where is that thinking derived, you know, from? And sometimes unpacking that thinking really uncovers, yeah, that's a little bit not quite healthy. That's not a good thought or that's not a helpful thought. And unpacking a lot of the um, the thought processes, which can be either black and white thinking, it's obviously not helpful thoughts, that's catastrophic sort of thinking, catastrophizing thinking. So there are different thinking patterns that we um, are very practiced in. 
And it's those sorts of habitual patterns that we go to, particularly when we're under stress, and how that then leads us to um, consoling, particularly me, in, you know, in food. So a lot of the food choices that we were doing was obviously, you know, the chocolates or the ice cream buckets Mm. of ice cream, Um, you know, six or seven pieces of toast, um, you know, while I'm cooking dinner. It really sounds to me like one of the overriding things was that you were being made aware. They were encouraging a mindfulness and awareness of what's going on. And when you had an urge to eat something, you were being aware of what that feeling was. And then, like you were saying, unpacking it a bit and going back to seeing what all those emotions were about rather than what you probably did before. I certainly know it's it's what I've always done is that emotion comes up. I I don't want to feel that emotion. So I'm going to push it back down with food. Whereas you were being encouraged to just suspend that leap from emotion to food and think into those feelings a bit. Yeah, so not jumping from the end point, which was the behaviour, which was the consoling myself in food. It was like, well, I know that I want to do that and I'm mindful of that decision has just popped into my head. Let's take two steps back. So what is it that I'm feeling? And then what is the thought connected to that feeling? So, yeah, it was about taking the time and you've used the word mindfulness and that came a lot more in vogue a little bit later on but taking the two steps back to to understand what are those triggers but in saying that one aspect one part of the toolkit was looking at and recognizing that unhelpful thinking which was connected to obviously a range of emotions not just being overwhelmed and um, being sad because there was a certain level of anxiety and depression that went along with that but the narrative therapy was really good, immersing myself into just scribbling down um, a lot of those random thoughts of why and how and what's happening to me. And in a non-sort of judgmental way, I could unload a lot of the emotions onto a piece of paper. That, so narrative therapy, that's what that, that's basically journaling. is, is writing, writing out everything that you're feeling that's happened. Yeah, And it's just like a big sort of emotional dump on a page and you're writing to no one in particular. Um, It doesn't have to be Dear Diary, but it's just about obviously some kind of emotional release. And you're getting it out rather than keeping it in. So I think the other, the third thing would be just general stress management techniques and being kind to yourself and taking time for yourself. That was something that was really particularly hard um, for a single parent and I was single parenting a child with um, special needs and working full time and at that time I was doing my PhD. So there was a lot of things on my plate that were very stressful and obviously in the background there was... um, as I was, you know, the unraveling of my my marriage and then family court stuff. So it's more really all they could do was try and help you manage, manage. your stress. They, they can't they can't reduce it because it was there. There's no arguing with that. But you you found some useful tools to to try and reduce the impact. Oh, most definitely. So you know, there was obviously things that you know developing 
skills developing in my in my toolkit to manage what was a very stressful part of my life. So yeah, very grateful and very thankful for um, for the skillfulness of of my therapist. And that's leading. That's three years leading up to my surgery. I s- continued to get therapy two years after my surgery as well. So, what were some of the things that that you found that did work for reducing stress? Because I know it's something that affects so many people. So I think that again is you're using the word mindfulness of you know what is the stress um, and how that manifests in um, in yourself and doing body scans. Uh, have you? I don't know if you know that sort of term. It's just basically just sort of you know sitting back and you know how what am I thinking? What am I feeling? Just doing that scan from head to toe of you know. I see. Right. So a mental scan. Correct. Yeah. And you might notice it in you're holding it in your shoulders or you're holding it, um, you know, in your chest or you're holding, you know, in your breathing particularly. So that was one particular technique and um, that was very useful to obviously, yep, I know that I need to take some time for me and time management and, you know, all that balance, taking time for yourself and, and really connecting with those things that relax and reduce that sort of inner inner tension. Yeah, that, that sounds good. So it's really identifying where physically it's in your body so that you can literally help yourself by trying to, to ease that with whatever it is, some kind of loosening up exercise or breathing it out or whatever it is, but really identifying it and being aware of where it is and helping release it rather than, obviously, if you're not doing that, it gets locked in and you can end up with shoulder pain or neck pain or whatever it is, however it manifests. Yeah. And I think at that time, certainly afterwards, um, we moved away from the cognitive behaviour therapy in terms of obviously identifying what those um, trigger, you know, feelings, thoughts and behaviours were and really having had, you know, a well-managed um, in terms of the, the binge eating, um, certainly after surgery, and it moved more into a supportive counselling role. Absolutely. Yeah, so a lot of the, the role that the therapist took um, after surgery was around um, supportive um, supportive therapy in that way that um, it really was about, you know, how are things going and checking in. But the point is you'd got yourself to a really good place of readiness mm. to have the surgery and then so then from that point onwards it became a supportive role, but you, you'd really done some good work before Correct. you had the surgery. Yeah. yeah. Most definitely. And, you know, I'm eternally grateful for um, the relationship that I built with this particular therapist. And I know that that's not always the case with people who haven't found a really good fit with their therapist. Um, but where I may be different from other people, I certainly am having researched um certainly I think I told this story on 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 our podcast that I went to the surgeons I went to a number of different surgeons with journal articles and I had highlighted and I had post-it notes and I had all these questions having you know from the literature you know just so I could be taken seriously so um, for this particular um, therapist I had researched the eating disorders um, therapy research group and um so it was almost like I was interrogating him in the first um, in their first session. It's like, well, why should I be with you? <laughs> so it's just like, okay, yeah, 
What model are you using? Now, why is that the one? Where is your evidence for this? It's like you said, a lot of people, they don't, they don't necessarily find a therapist they can work for. A lot of people actually don't necessarily want to work with or aren't ready to work with a therapist in the first place. But I seem to remember also that you mentioned that you got a lot out of the work of Gretchen Rubin, who I think is, is best known for her book, The Happiness Project. But um, tell me a bit about that, because that shows how someone can get some help from something as easy as, as, as just buying a book and, and being inspired by somebody. You don't have to go down necessarily the therapy route to get some really good insight. No, and, and you're right. And um, the work of Gretchen Rubin, as you're right, um, and that led me from the Happiness Project, which I thought was absolutely wonderful, where um, if people haven't read Gretchen's Happiness Project, it's a bit like um, Eat, Love, Pray, um, Elizabeth Gilbert's book, where um, Gretchen, over one year, decides to work on happiness, where she says she's not that she's not unhappy, but she wants to find what are the sources of happiness. So for each month of the year, she goes through and she she um, focuses on one area of her life. So she works through her kids, her husband, her house, her job and her you know, other activities. So she goes from um, January to December. Where that led Gretchen was to her second book, which was Better Than Before. And so she focuses then a lot on um, her behaviours and in particular habits and she develops up a model which she calls the four tendencies. And these four tendencies um, are around how you respond to external or internal accountabilities or expectations. And she categorizes them into four different types of people. And why that's relevant is, um, first of all, I'll tell you those four, which is you are either an upholder, so you can be either an internal and external um, accountabilities or expectations um, or an obliger, so where you meet external or other other people's um, expectations or um, you can be a rebel. You can just sort of go, well, you know, that's just not happening for me and you can stick it up your jumper. But it, it'll depend on which jumper you want to choose, you know, that sort of thing. So you can rebel rebelize it that way. Or you can be um, the fourth category is a questioner. So why should I do that? So naturally, I am an obliger. So I need to have external accountabilities, which is why I took so long to do my PhD um, because I was, you know, externalizing a lot of it and um, of why I needed to, to finish this wretched thesis without internalising, you know, that I should be doing this for myself and I really struggled with meeting deadlines and, um, yeah, and because I was too busy trying to, to meet other people's, what I thought were other people's expectations. And part of understanding where you are in these typologies is how you meet with um, other, other issues and other aspects of habits and one of which was a light bulb moment for me was understanding you can moderate certain aspects of your behaviour or you need to abstain. And I need to be an abstainer because I can't moderate, say, um, trigger aspects of, of my behaviours such as chocolate. Um, and that's really where um, when I'm looking at how I respond to food, 
I need to not have it in my house. So if I have it in my house, then I'm an all or nothing personality. Same here. And that whole just eat everything in moderation. Yeah, okay. (laughs) What rubbish. And my GP, my general practitioner or PCP, you know, primary care physician says, yeah, I'm a moderation person. And I'm thinking, yeah, and how did that serve me at nearly 140 kilos? Moderation did not work for me. So I need to understand in mastering my habits of of, um, in being an obliger, external accountability I need to have an accountability person. So who am I accountable to? And we work together to do that. So if you need to set me a deadline, then set me a deadline and I need to respond to that. So, and it needs to be all or nothing. So it's got to be firm and set because I can't moderate my workload. So it'll be not, it'll be done the night before. (laughs) So, um, yeah, yeah, as all good deadline undergraduate students do. Um, Yeah, but it needs to, it needs to happen that way. But becoming aware and enlightened that way through um, Gretchen's model, and you can take a quiz. Her quiz is online. Um, highly recommended. It's just a short quiz to understand what your tendency is, and um, yeah, it's it's quite quite an enlightening. Um, yeah, I was going to say sometimes these quizzes are, are enlightening because you think you know which type you're going to be before you do the quiz. But it doesn't always necessarily work out that way. Sometimes it'll illuminate different things about you that you weren't quite aware of. That when someone points out, you think, oh, okay, maybe, yeah, you know, maybe I'm a bit like that too. Yeah. It sounds like you've learned a lot through these few years. Um, there was, th- I was thinking if there was one thing you could go back and tell your younger self, what would it be? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And I think if I reflect back and talk to my younger self, I think it would be just be kind to yourself. And that self-love and self-kindness, I really could have done, um, yeah, certainly through my late 20s and early 30s when, like many women, we struggle with meeting what we think are you know, these expectations of others and, you know, whether it's mother-in-laws or sister-in-laws or our own mothers, our relationships with our sisters and particularly our husbands, not so much our ex-husbands, but we, you know, we'll move on from that. And, um, you know, just, yeah, certainly being kind to yourself and that self-love, taking time out um, for yourself is, is so important. Yeah, just give yourself a big hug. And and how would you get your younger self to listen to that message? Because I know I've I've thought about this question. I've thought of so many things I'd like to tell my younger self, but I also know how stubborn my younger self was and very unlikely to listen. So knowing what you know about yourself, how would you get her to listen? <laughs> I'm just wondering whether you need a tattoo or something permanent. To <laughs> Can you etch it on my forehead? Um, I don't know. That's a really great question too because I think the the thing was, you're right, I was like my mum would say a um, like a bull in a china shop. I was raring to go. Maybe it's just the fiery redhead, you know, ranger, you know, ginger ninja mm-hmm. that I am. Um, I was 
full steam ahead and in my 20s and I knew what I was doing and where I was going and, you know, this was my career path, I, went, I don't know whether I needed just a big slap in the face or I don't a know. A slap in the face and then a hug. Yeah. <laughs> perhaps, yeah. perhaps that would have done it. Mixed messages. <laughs> What is it about you? You always ask these awkward questions. I do. I, I've kind of, I do have a bit of a reputation for that, don't I? If you remember back in the, back in the two keto dudes Facebook page, I was, I was often uh, remarked upon that I was asking awkward questions, and I can remember a couple of people saying, "Why can't you just accept that's the way it is?" Hell no. Could that, you know, that's, that's, that's just not me. I like to dig around. If I, if I get an idea or a theory that I think sounds great, I like to really dig around and test it. And I always set the bar now with Tim Noakes and what he did in, in the first serial killers film where you see him ripping pages out of his book, throwing them in the bin and saying, I got it wrong. I was the expert in this field and I got it all wrong and he's he's discussed elsewhere how you need to always challenge your theories and your belief system to make sure that they've got strong foundations and that's that's the gold standard for me now so yeah I'm basically nosy and I was that child that was but why <laughs> and I I think you know I remember I think we we joined um the two kilo dudes um Facebook around the same time and we had many a you know, lively discussion and, you know, you yeah. were asking those awkward questions, but it was great because you were, you know, quite engaging and you certainly were digging and asking and um, hopefully I remember, you know, a few times I was responding, you know, to very long threads of yours <laughs> with research, you know, I was, you were saying yeah. but why and I posted a few a few links and those sorts of things. But I think it would be fantastic that you will be, you know, on the um, – Keto Women's um, podcast now asking, you know, hopefully a lot of extraordinary women, um, you know, curious about women's issues and their journeys. And, you know, I think you've you've got the right attitude with asking women these awkward questions. So thank you for taking this on. This is fantastic. Well, it's beyond exciting. And I just cannot wait to really get my teeth in. You know, it's 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 been so great finding out more about you you know we're friends and we, we know each other reasonably well but but sometimes you it's great to get into these deeper conversations and really dig around and and find out interesting things about extraordinary women I love it and and this this is what this is what the show's all about I I want to share these these great stories with the listener but I want you the listener to get involved I want to hear what topics you want covered what seemingly awkward questions you want answers to you know what are what are those things that that are driving your curiosity so really really would like you to get engaged and get in touch with the two keto dudes and post some replies on the ketogenic forums and tell me where you want this podcast to go. Well, that sounds really exciting. And hopefully um, you've got a long list of extraordinary women that are lined up, ready to go with the podcast. And I know that um, 
uh, not only on the ketogenic forums that um, we've got some amazing stories that, um, you know, are shared on a daily basis there. Um, and I also know that um, you certainly are very active um, in your kick-ass keto bitches group as well. So, and always available and asking, asking and responding <laughs> to those awkward questions that the bitchy, bitchy bitches have and shout out to them. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, a, a big shout out to them because that group that was just started on a whim, really, when the, the Two Keto Dudes page shut down and I realized I'd miss a certain part of the Facebook interaction. And that group has just grown to be something phenomenal for me. It is my absolute safe place and I'm honored that other women call it that and I really have them and you you're a part of them to thank for my development on this path because I wouldn't be doing it without them and I love them <laughs> and yeah this this podcast is for them and everyone out there who's who's interested in women and keto. Fantastic, Daisy. Thanks for thanks for letting me be one of the the first of the many, hopefully, extraordinary keto women that are going to be sharing their story on on the podcast. Yes, and thank you, Louise. It's it's been fantastic to to share this first podcast with you. Thanks, Daisy. Bye. Bye, Bye everybody. So that was the pilot episode of Keto Women by Daisy mm -hmm. Brackenhall, and I found that charming. I did too. Uh, I'm looking forward to hearing more of those, and if you also enjoyed that, then let us know. Yes, uh, definitely. I'm looking forward to more stories, and uh, if you want those stories to continue, go to our Patreon account, patreon.2keto.com, and make a pledge, because a monthly pledge will go a long way to helping us reach our goal of bringing you all these new podcasts. Of course, if you have anything that you want to tell us, something Daisy said wrong <laughs> or something that you don't agree with, some more research that you found to support or refute anything Daisy said, send it by email to dudes at 2ketodudes.com or post it on our website. And you can follow us on Twitter at 2ketodudes, on Instagram at 2ketodudes, and make sure to use the hashtag 2ketodudes. And, of course, if you want to join the free ketogenic forum, it's forum.2keto.com. And if useless swag is your fancy, you know, T-shirts and coffee mugs and that kind of junk, head over to gear.2keto.com. And if you want a shot at getting any of that swag for free, join the 2 Keto Dudes fan club. You'll be eligible to win something in every show. So go to fanclub.2keto.com. And you can also see our podcast and other videos on YouTube at youtube.2keto.com. And if you haven't already, go leave us a review on iTunes. Yeah, preferably a five-star review. <laughs> <laughs> uh, two Keto Dudes and all of our other podcasts are brought to you by Two Keto LLC and produced by Pwop Productions, providing audio, video, and podcast production services since 2002. Online at pwop.com. Well, keep calm and keto on, Richard. Yeah, keep calm and keto on, Carl. All right, we'll see you next time on Two Keto Dudes. Keto Dudes.